The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5, and it's on page 970. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in, their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're looking at prayer and fasting. And again, Jesus insists that our piety should not be like that of the Pharisees, which was ostentatious, motivated by vanity, and only out to try and impress others. But it should be distinctly Christian, he says. So it should be in secret motivated by humility and rewarded by God. We'll deal with fasting first and then prayer because A, there's less to say and B, I'm not sure that I look a very plausible example of somebody who fasts regularly. If you want, of course, to encourage me and disagree with my self-assessment, then do say so on the way out. Nobody did at the end of the first service, right? Uh, fasting is simply going without food. That's why we call our first meal of the day breakfast. We have refrained from eating whilst we've been asleep. But it is more than just not eating. So forgetting to have lunch, either because we're too busy or we just can't be bothered to get some lunch, doesn't count. Neither does dieting to lose weight. Fasting has a purpose behind it. And there are four reasons that the Bible mentions. The first is to humble ourselves before God. 
And there are many examples of that, particularly in the Old Testament, where people have realized that uh, they or their nation have um, been particularly sinful and they're brought under conviction by God and they turn to a time of prayer and fasting. Hezekiah in uh, Isaiah 36 to 39 is a classic example of that. A second uh, reason is to express our dependence on God for the outcome of something that they're very concerned about. So, King Jehoshaphat, who was overwhelmed at the prospect of having to go into battle against a superior force, turned to prayer and fasting. Thirdly, it can be um, an expression of self-control. The Apostle Paul, in uh, his letter to Timothy, uses the image of an athlete as that of a Christian, preparing ourselves for the race through life. And then fourthly, you can fast in order to um, save those resources so that you can share them with other people. Isaiah 58 would be an example of that. But beware, should you ever receive hospitality from a Christian from a less developed country, because what may appear to you to be a simple meal of chicken may, of course, have uh, meant that they've had a week of meagre rations as a consequence. The Lord's Prayer, then. Sir Cliff Richard experienced a bit of bother a few years ago. Although five million people had gone out and bought his revamped rendition of the Lord's Prayer, many in the music business tried to both censor it and rubbish it. George Michael said it was vile. Mel C of the Spice Girls, well, her summing up is unrepeatable. But what she did say that is repeatable is that it was ripping off the fans, which, of course, missed the whole point because all the money was going to children's charities. Even Madame Tussauds seemed to have it in for Sir Cliff. They decided that their waxworks of him needed updating, a new head with extra wrinkles. It's been 10 years since the model has had any work done on it, and it needs updating to keep up with the time, so the bosses of the museum said. The body itself doesn't need much renovating because Sir Cliff has managed to stay in trim. However, his head needs a few more grey hairs, and his face needs a few more lines. But people bought the record because they were trying to give some meaning to what would otherwise have been the biggest non-event of either the 20th century or the 21st century, the date change from 1999 to the year 2000. Well, he used the Lord's Prayer as a way to give that some meaning. So let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you were a religious Jew in Jesus' day, you'll have prayed three times a day morning, afternoon and evening, either in the synagogue or actually in the street where you might happen to be. Jesus, as we saw last week in relation to giving, does not like people who show off. He does not like ostentation because that reveals that they have a false motive, which we read in verse 1, to be seen by men. And pagans could similarly be ostentatious, out to impress others. But in their case, their prayer method was rather, we read, babbling. It's kind of derived from somebody who 
I think, had a stammer, the word, that is. In other words, it was vain repetition. It was all rather mindless, instead of being meaningful communication, where both the mouth and the mind are engaged. So let's have a look at it. When you pray, the prayer begins when you pray. Jesus assumes it is something everybody does, at least sometime in their life. I think I heard on the radio this morning that some survey had reckoned that 50% of people pray sometime in their life. Well, I should think it's much higher than that. I mean, we all learn to pray, perhaps from our grannies, who say, teach us to say, God bless mummy, God bless daddy, and God bless all the poor children in Africa or something. They teach us that age three. But when we're in a crisis, we cry out to God to get us out of the mess that we got ourselves into. I'm sure there were not many silent atheists when the Titanic was going down. Sometimes it does take a personal crisis or a personal tragedy to get us to turn to God, to realise that this world doesn't deal with everything, but that inside us there is a spiritual vacuum to be filled and God has his name written all over it. So Jesus gives his disciples this example to follow when praying. The prayer starts with an invocation, and then there are six petitions that give the proper priorities for us in life. Three of those petitions focus upon God and his preeminence, while the final three focus on our personal needs in a community context. So the invocation, our Father in heaven. Heaven isn't, of course, somewhere over the rainbow or up above the clouds or even somewhere beyond the 100,000 million galaxies, each of which has 100,000 million stars like our sun. It is a totally different dimension, but one which we can be connected to, one in which we will spend eternity in. So God is incomprehensibly mega-powerful. He isn't part of the universe. He's actually outside and distinct from it. He created it. He sustains it. And he has authority. Harry Blamires makes the point that it is authority that saves us from tyranny and authoritarianism. He was a former professor of English literature at the University of Winchester. He died in his 90s um, last year. He wrote a classic book called The Christian Mind. In it, he says, It is respect for the central orthodoxies of law, culture, and religion that alone preserves us from the multiplicity of intolerable petty authoritarianism exercised by those who have the loudest voices, the strongest arms, or the most assertive egos. But as well as being mega-powerful, God is also a personal father. Of course, God doesn't have a body. He is spirit. However, he has chosen to reveal himself as a father. Yep, he says also that he is like a mother, So when we imagine the best qualities there could be in a father, we recognise that they are derived from him. But he is a father. But also, since all good motherly qualities derive from him, he is like 
a mother. But note, he is a father, and he's like a mother. He isn't a kind of male-female God. He is not bisexual. He is not neutered, i.e. that he doesn't have a sex, because otherwise he'd have no personality, and we'd therefore not be able to relate to him. No, he reveals himself as a father, but like a mother. But Jesus goes on further, and he says to his disciples to pray to our Father. You see, Jesus and God, the Father, see us all as natural orphans, that he sees us alone and adrift in this world. But he wants to adopt us as his children. And when we respond to that invitation, we gain an international family of brothers and sisters. Today we have proximity without intimacy. We live and work with others, but socially we keep our distance, either because we've been let down in relationships or because we fear that they might see us as we really are and not like us. Fortunately, there are no such drawbacks with God the Father. The Bible has a long track record of him seeking out those who may at first glance seem particularly unpleasant. But he woos and wins them, and he brings them back to himself. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, that simply means that... um, We longed for God to get the credit that he deserves, that he is given full recognition for who he is and what he has done. Your kingdom come. One of the sort of contemporary writers of the postmodern age who interprets where we're at is a guy called Douglas Copeland. Writing a few years ago, he said, there is a darkness to the future. The future is not a good place. If you see nothing beyond this life, I can understand why he's reached that conclusion. But 2,000 years ago, through Jesus Christ, God set about reversing the doom and gloom outlook. Jesus broke through the barrier of sin and death when he died on the cross and then rose again from the dead so that all who entrust themselves to him look forward to their own resurrection when Jesus Christ returns to inaugurate a perfect new heaven and new earth together. The best is yet to come, but not in this life. Your will be done. I wonder whether this is the real reason why Sir Cliff had such a hard time. Take Radio 2. First, they wouldn't play the record. Not broad enough appeal, they said. Then when it became number two and they still hadn't played it, their excuse was, it's seasonal, and it's still November. Of course, they did then eventually have to play it, and when he sung it in the Millennium Dome the following week, Radio 2 broadcast it. But why the flack? Wasn't it that they did not like what this well-recognised Christian stands for? Isn't it all down to this, as one national newspaper concluded? We wouldn't dream of forcing the BBC to play records by Sir Cliff or anyone else. 
we would simply like to voice our suspicion that the real reason for the exclusion of the Millennium Prayer from the BBC playlist is that it celebrates the Christian millennium in a specifically Christian way. And what is it that the likes of George Michael and Mel C and others find objectionable in the Christian way? Well, it's this, your will be done, and that's what they don't want to do. They want to do their own thing, and the media world is especially full of people like that, who very sadly, in doing so, doing their own thing, mess up their own lives, mess up others, and it even has fatal consequences, as it happened to one of those that I've just mentioned. What a wonderful way, though, to avoid such grief that we're all prone to is to just follow God's will, to follow the Maker's instructions. What a wonderful antidote to anxiety to know that an all-powerful, heavenly Father is in charge of the situation. But it's in this area that I think is the main battleground for most people. We struggle. Are we going to do God's will or are we going to do our own thing? I mean, I wonder if any of you are going through that sort of challenge, tossing and turning in your mind at this particular time. Well, let me give you a question that may help you resolve it. As it were, hover above your contemporary battle and think to the long-distant future. Who is going to win? It's best to back the one who's going to win. Now, quite a few of the staff at St Mary's are rather attached to um, football, even fantasy football, some of them. And they are um, keen supporters of certain teams. Now, if you were wanting to kind of, you know, acquire your own football team to support, who would you opt for? Now, okay, Liverpool did beat Man City last week, but they won't win the Premier League. Man City will win the Premier League easily. So, it's a smart move if you're looking for a team to support, to back Man City. But, Caroline, Steve, Fiona and Tim D, they support Liverpool. Tim F and Rob support Man United. They can hope all they like. But Man City will win the Premier League. Not that I support Man City, I mean, at all. I don't actually support anybody. I did used to, when I was about eight or nine, I made the same, I backed the team who were currently winning the cup and the league. Leeds United. So you can see what my judgment has led to. I don't know where they are now, but somewhere way out of sight. They don't have a feature. So the best decision is to back the one who's going to win. And there's no doubt that God is going to win. It is a wise person. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Give us each day our daily bread. We're fortunate in our country that... Um, our bread does just turn up. No one needs starve. No one needs to worry where their next meal is coming from. 
But do we realize just how delicately balanced our environment is? I don't mean just the earthly environment. I mean the whole kind of cosmic environment. You see, it would only take a few kind of cosmic variables, like the relationships of the planets to one another, or just a slight tweak in our orbit around the sun, and we'd either fry or freeze, depending on whether we went closer or further away from it, and that would be the end of it. Just a very slight tweak. So maybe the line in this prayer does still retain its relevance for us today. But notice it's a prayer for our basic needs, not for luxuries. There's no prayer for Porsches. If you could get down that low to get in one. We don't believe in a genie God. You know, the kind of God who is at our beck and call. You know, we're in a fix. He needs to do something. Get the lamp out, rub it. Genie appears. We tell genie what we want. Genie provides. Well, who's God then? We're God. It's not that kind of religion. No, it's simply to recognize that we are not as self-sufficient as we think we are. And yes, we need to recognize our dependence on him. <coughs> Forgive us our sins. Maybe you're still back there reflecting on your will be done. So often the battle is either over what we have done wrong and whether we're prepared to stop it, or whether we're contemplating doing something which we know is wrong, and have we got the guts to sort of stop there and then. So what do we do with what we know are sins, wrong against others, which are ultimately wrongs against God himself? If you live in a shame culture like Japan, you can't really do anything can't get rid of your sins. You are stuck with them. You have to live with them. No wonder it has the highest suicide rate in the world. But we, because of our Christian heritage, still live in a guilt culture. And there are some avenues open to us, some which lead really nowhere. You can try repressing it and carry on, but it's still there. You can try suppressing it, but it's still there and it can eventually catch you out in depression. You can become obsessive about it and become preoccupied with guilt and get you in, yourself into a right state of thinking that really nobody, certainly not God, is going to kind of relieve you of this burden you have. But there is, of course, the Christian solution, which does solve the problem, and that is forgiveness. Kingsley Amis, the novelist, said much the same when uh, shortly before he died he was interviewed and he said, one of the great things about organised religion is that you can be forgiven your sins. And then he paused for a long time and bowed his head. I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There is nobody to forgive them. But we know that there is. Jesus advocates this other option, confession. Admit our wrongs to God and ask for forgiveness. And you know it really works. There is no condemnation, the Apostle Paul says, for those who are in Christ. A quiet conscience and peace with God are accessed through a penitent heart and an explicit confession. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
A sign of our genuineness is that we are prepared to forgive those who have wronged us. The scale of the wrongdoing may vary, but the thinking behind it all is that they are fallen human beings just like we are. If I expect God to forgive me, I must be prepared to forgive them. And what is astonishing at times is that you read a story of somebody who has really suffered, way beyond our experience, and yet by the grace of God, they've been able to forgive, and they have blossomed through the trauma, whereas someone else may have held on to their bitterness for years, and it has really chewed them up. Lead us not into temptation. Not that God tempts us, but he allows in this fallen world things to happen, and through them he sees and other people see what we are really like. Under pressure of temptation and trial, will we succumb or won't we? What really are our priorities in life? Do we really believe or not? Temptation is rather like being on an outward bound course or a selection course for one of the uh, elite arms of the military. People are immersed in a gruelling exercise together and their true character appears. When we're going through a time of trial, our character becomes evident. The experience may either refine us or ruin us. Either way, they are tough times and they're best kept to a minimum. But when we do go through them, we need God on our side to deliver us from evil. C.S. Lewis pointed out that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, just as there are human beings, there are also spiritual or heavenly beings. And just as the first human beings rebelled against God, so too prior to that, some of the heavenly beings did so under their leader who is variously called in scripture Satan, the devil, the prince of darkness, Beelzebub. And what he's in business for is to blind the eyes of as many people as possible so that that stops them going any further, so that they've got an excuse. It may be that the Christian they know best is a hypocrite and an incredibly bad advertisement for the faith. That is enough to stop them for decades pursuing it any further. Or it may be that they have misunderstood some aspect of the Bible and they have taken it literally when the thing's clearly a poem. And that too, they think Christians are simpletons. They can't possibly, he can't, they can't possibly kind of embrace that sort of religion. And that holds them for decades. The devil loves that kind of thing. You know, we're all sort of held back from transferring our personal allegiance over to our Heavenly Father, who wants us to have the life that he had planned for us, a life with him. 
One example would be the way in which the media portrays clergy, an area I'm particularly sensitive to, of course. I took it as a compliment a few years ago when somebody was being interviewed about Christianity Explored and they said, Clive was nothing like I imagined a vicar to be. I don't know quite what the person thought I was like beforehand, but it, I took that as a compliment because the media don't tend to portray clergy very well. The obscure academic, kind of otherworldly, usually with a beard. Or a kind of, um, you know, sort of radical clergy who wants to be in with the kind of mood of the moment and who merely baptises the latest kind of fad that the world's going through. Or the old, grey-haired, bifocal, pot-bellied, doddery, no, not me yet, but the, 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 re <laughs> but the Reverend Tims in Postman Pat. Or something I fortunately will never be, a jolly, sad, fat lady longing for a hubby like Dawn French in The Vicar of Dibley. Who would seriously go to any of those if they wanted to know the meaning of life and how to live and how to cope with what all this life throws at us? Now, I'm not suggesting that the people who write those things consciously uh, are operating to um, further the devil's schemes, but that is the effect of it. You kind of ridicule um, those who are the sort of, sort of seemingly the public spokespersons for God so that you shut people off from ever inquiring about God. It is the devil's work to keep people from getting nearer to the truth. So what happened with, um, I suppose, Sir Cliff and the millennial prayer was simply this. Not that the DJs knew they were working to further the devil's purposes. I don't believe for a moment they did. But effectively, by somehow not wanting to play it, by kind of rubbishing it as being you know, not mainstream, that they were depriving people of the opportunity to expose themselves to some of the truth about God. And finally, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, is just the place to be reminded that earthly kingdoms come and go, that empires rise and fall. But who is still worshipped in Jerusalem? Because he's still in charge of this world because he governs the entire universe, because he still rules. Astronomers tell us that our sun is 500 times the mass of our Earth and is like a vast hydrogen bomb burning slowly. Every second, 4,000 million, 4, million, yeah, 4 million tons of hydrogen are destroyed in explosions near the core. There at the core, the heat is so intense that a pinhead of material would give off enough heat to kill a human being a million miles away. In one second, it emits more energy than we human beings have used up from the Earth's resources since history began. Yet all of this is less than a striking of a match to the power of God. He is all-powerful,
and one day he will get all the glory, all the credit that he deserves for who he is and what he's done. And the prayer ends with the word, Amen, which literally means truly. It means that if we agree with these words, as I hope we do, we say Amen to them. And I invite you as a means of application, whether you'd like to come and join us as we pray this Wednesday between 8 and 9.30 at our church prayer meeting, where we pray for the world and the advance of God's kingdom and for the church and for those in need. Amen.